listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Did you did you listen to or watch that Joe Rogan I podcast? Listened, I did. I listened you to listen that. You listened to it with yeah, uh, Brian Richards. And Brian Richards and Doug, um, Doug, Doug Duran. Yes. Yeah, people will know Doug from The Meat Eater. Yeah, and I... I, I wasn't familiar with that uh, show, but um, one of my colleagues actually who listens to the Joe Rogan podcast, she she uh, pointed me to it one day and said, hey, did you know he's talking about chronic wasting disease? And so that was kind of, to be honest, it was kind of my introduction to podcasts. Oh, wow, cool. That was, that was pretty cool and it was pretty awesome to get um, that much information out in a, in a media like that. So, yeah. Yeah, like, like Joe Rogan's podcast is getting like a million downloads an episode, right? So Absolutely. that reached, uh, that reached yeah. a lot of, yeah. a lot of people. I actually, um, uh, reached out to Doug Duran on Instagram after he did that podcast and just kind of like, um, asked him for some advice. He sent me, emailed me some information and, and whatnot. So he's got, he's got some good things that maybe we'll pull back in, you know, late, later on. So what, is there anything that, um, that stood out on that podcast? I just, uh, I really appreciated how, you know, Brian Richards, we, uh, you know, I've, I've never met him, but, um, we've corresponded, you know, on, on this issue before. And, um, you know, we're often on, you know, email chains together. And, um, I just really appreciated how, um, how he was able to present all of that information because some of the information can be, you know, pretty heavy. There's a lot of information and that's something that we always, I I struggle with, um, just trying to, you know, get that information out in kind of an accessible form. And I really appreciated how he was able to do that and they covered so much, but it seemed, you know, pretty accessible and pretty easy to understand. He was a good, um, a good, good speaker. Yeah. He's definitely knowledgeable about, you know, and if he got too academic, then Doug Duran was sort of like, okay, this is what it means to an average guy like me. Yeah. It was a good balance. Yeah, it, it was. So yeah, there was a, um, two things that stood out to me and they were quotes, um, that both, both of them said, and, uh, Brian Richards said, get on it. Um, being chronic wasting disease, he said, get on it early, get on it hard. Mm-hmm. And, um, Doug Duran said, buy time, pay for science. That's right. Those are, those are, uh, there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot in those, mm-hmm. those two sayings. So absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, you know, because of the experience we're seeing across North America and, and all these areas struggling with dis- this disease, there's a an attitude of, you know, what can we do about it? But I did really appreciate that, that, you know, here we're in, in a good position that if we can keep it at bay as long as possible, hopefully we can buy ourselves some time, support the science and have some more tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no doubt. It's uh, it's obviously a big deal if it's on a Joe Rogan show. So yeah, yeah, we're covering it today. So yeah, our topic today is uh, chronic wasting disease, and we're going to be specifically narrowing down to uh, southeastern British Columbia. We're in Cranbrook, uh, BC tonight. Uh, I'm Mark Hall, your host. I'm Curtis Hall, co-host. I'm Erin Osland Hall, editor. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's the, the last episode. Erin was on. Uh, She's our uh, chief editor, proofreader, and um, 
manager of my my funds for for buying outdoor stuff. So <laughs> that's her official title. That's so important important role you have. <laughs> so we're uh, we're joined by um, Kate Nelson. Uh, Kate, you're a wildlife health biologist with the Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development for the BC government. That's right. And you're the chronic wasting disease lead for the on the ground program. That's right. Eight years? Yeah, eight years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I came on with the, the wildlife health program about 13 years ago. I've been working with the provincial wildlife veterinarian on a number of different uh, wildlife health projects around the province, but um, has, have been taking the lead on chronic wasting disease program for the province for about the last eight years. Wow. So what what is what's your path? How did you how did you get into that role and how yeah. did you become the person with the most important job in wildlife management in British Columbia right now? Yeah, it it wasn't a, a clear path from the beginning, for sure. I um I grew up on the coast. Um my parents are both public servants. They're uh, marine biologists. So mm. I grew up on the coast. I grew up in boats. And I always wanted to be a biologist since I was six years old, according to my mom. And, uh, you know, so I went through university, studied marine biology, you know, thought that was going to be my path. But after I finished my undergrad at UBC, I got a job in Victoria um, as a research assistant for a grad student out there. And we needed access to a lab to process our samples. And so somehow we got connected with the provincial wildlife uh, veterinarian, mm-hmm. Helen Swancha. Um, and we asked if we could use her lab. So that's how I met Helen. And um, over the course of that summer, you know, we went for coffee a couple times and she's telling me about the work that she did, which I had never been exposed to, you know, that, that kind of field. But I thought it was all very interesting and very cool. And so at the end of the summer, I came to, you know, say goodbye. I'm going back to Vancouver and she offered me a job. Oh, wow. And that was it. And I, you know, I, I thought I was going to go back to school and, and study algae <laughs> and do a master's in uh, phycology. But, um, but yeah, she offered me this opportunity and I figured, hey, if I can learn something, you know, it's even better than school. So, you know, uh, I, I took her up on the opportunity and started learning about wildlife health in the province. And yeah, 13 years later, I'm still here. Uh, she's an amazing teacher, amazing mentor, and I'm still learning so much from her every single day. So it was the right decision. Oh, wow. What yeah. a great story. Yeah. yeah. She's a larger than life character. Absolutely. Yeah. What a great person to work under. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so maybe um, give us give us let's let's dig into chronic wasting disease. I mean, I know um, other podcasts of like they've talked about it, they explain what it is, but um, like we were talking earlier today, I don't I don't think this can be overemphasized. Like I don't think you can over communicate and educate people about exactly what this is, and and mm-hmm. even if there's one person out there that's like had no idea and they come away from this knowing a bit more. So yeah. what is this thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a complex, uh, it's a complex topic. So, um, we'll start with the basics. It's, uh, a, a prion disease. So the infectious agent that causes chronic wasting disease is a prion, which is essentially a, um, abnormal or a misfolded protein 
so proteins are normal there, you know, they're in our bodies, but, but this particular disease associated protein is, is misfolded. And so it presents with these unique characteristics, um, such as, you know, they're very resistant to heat. They're resistant to UV light and they're very long lasting. Typically proteins will recycle in the body and they break down into their component parts. But these, um, for whatever reason, the misfolded uh, protein, these prions are very long lasting. They can live for, um, you know, uh, several years, possibly decades. So it's really unusual. Um, so, so these, these prions, they, they target the tissues in the central nervous system and, um, essentially, um, because they're not functioning like normal proteins, they cause cell death. And so the result is you get, um, cell death and, and, uh, literally holes in the, in the brain tissue. And, um, um, so, you know, so you start to see, um, this condition of a degenerative neurological disease. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they didn't, do they know what causes the proteins to misfold? Is that occurring inside the body or is a abnormal protein getting into the body? Yeah, we don't fully understand uh, prions, um, but they seem to have the ability once, once they enter a body and they come into contact with normal proteins, they can convert normal proteins into these disease-associated prions. So wow. they just tend to replicate and, and concentrate, accumulate in the body. Right. Yeah. Now there, the, the ungulate version um, that affect the deer family. So that's right. Yeah. Deer, so elk. Moose. Yeah. Any of the species in the deer family or cervids um, are susceptible to chronic wasting disease. Um, chronic wasting disease is part of a group of diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies mm. or TSEs. Um, basically the, those long words transmissible, uh, just means it's transmissible between animals. Um, spongiform is referring to that sponge like appearance of the tissue. It actually looks like a sponge and encephalopathy is just a disease of the brain. So TSEs or prion diseases, um, CWD is part of this group of diseases and, and, um, you know, people are, are probably familiar with some other TSEs such as, uh, BSC or mad cow disease in the cattle. There's a, a sheep version called scrapie and there's a, a human version called, uh, Kreutzfeldt Jakob disease which is actually um, if people consume infected meat uh, of a, a cattle with um, BSC or mad cow disease, then they would develop the human version of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease or CJD. But all of these diseases, they're all caused by prions, but they're very different diseases. And typically they do not cross species barriers, um, BSC or mad cow being the exception. But uh, as far as we know, chronic wasting disease only affects species in the deer family. Um, so the only species that are um, known to be affected uh, in the wild in North America, we've got um, mule deer and white-tailed deer um, have been um, mainly affected with this disease. There's a, a small number of, of elk and, and moose in the wild 
that have been affected. But in, in North America, it's primarily been an issue in the mule deer populations and uh, and also the whitetail populations. Yeah, the whitetails in the eastern U.S. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then <clears throat> recently it's been um, affected um, reindeer, caribou That's in right. Scandinavia. That's right. Uh, it was recently detected for the first time in Europe uh, and the first time in a reindeer in Norway in 2016. Um, it was also recently detected in red deer uh, in, a, in a farm in Quebec just last year. And they have had some cases in red deer in, uh, in Europe as well, in, in the wild uh, population in Norway. Yeah, so, so we've seen it in those, um, those six species. Uh, now, with the recent detection in, in reindeer in Europe, that's reindeer and caribou are essentially the same species, and so there's implications for caribou recovery and conservation here in North America. So uh, we don't have any cases in caribou in North America, but we you know, now have these confirmed cases in reindeer, so we do know they're susceptible. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. especially because they're finding whitetails, you know, pushing into the boreal forests and more and more in Canada. So there's a, uh, an overlap between those species now, which creates the, creates the risk. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So this wasn't in Europe before. That's right. And, and do they have any idea how it gets there? I mean, that's, a, that's obviously a long ways away. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It, to, my, to my knowledge, they don't know exactly how it ended up in Europe. Um, the, the governments over there have taken some steps to, um, you know, try and figure this out. Uh, one theory was that it was brought in on um, plant material or feed. And so there's been a, a recent ban um, from any uh, uh, CWD-affected area in North America. Now, um, Norway and I think some other countries in Europe have, have banned the import of, of any hay if it comes from a CWD effect area. So I don't think they understand how it showed up there, but uh, that is... There was the one, the one incident of the elk in South Korea. That's right. But they actually traced it back to a mm-hmm. elk farm here in Canada, That's Saskatchewan, right. I think. So there's... Right. Yeah, no we, we actually shipped uh-huh. an infected animal mm-hmm. over there. So uh-huh. it's, it's kind of interesting because we're normally used to talking about um, the old world diseases from Europe Mm -hmm. that are devastating to North American ungulates like Mm -hmm. the wild sheep and and movie because they didn't evolve with it. So this is kind of something a little bit different where they don't, and and it seems like we're moving it over there. That's right. It was first just to, to go back to a bit of the history of CWD and the distribution. It was first um, reported in a captive facilities in the 1960s in uh, Colorado and Wyoming. Um, it, it actually wasn't uh, described as a prion disease or a TSE until the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back at that time when we had our, the first reports of it, we really didn't understand these prion diseases. But um, over, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s, it, it spread around. Um, you know, through through captive uh, farming of deer species, and you know, also in the free ranging populations, before it was really understood, and 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 you know, those jurisdictions had a handle on it. 
Um, so yeah, it spread through the States, but, uh, it was ultimately introduced to Canada in 1996 through, um, elk, uh, farmed elk into Saskatchewan in 1996. Yeah. That's, that's what I had read is it was elk that came out of one of the Dakotas. Yeah. Cause they were able to do a trace back. Yeah, that's right. So it. I think we had our first, um, detection in Canada in the wild, uh, deer populations in 2000. And, uh, you know, it was spreading, uh, spreading through Saskatchewan and, uh, ended up in some, some farms in Alberta. And I think 2005, first time it showed up in the free ranging population in Alberta. So when I started with the program around that time, um, the distribution of CWD was still really, you know, there was a, a focal area around the Colorado, Wyoming, Wyoming, and it was, was spreading, um, some small, some small areas affected in Canada it just had showed up in Alberta. Um, but now, you know, almost 15 years later, the disease has, continues to spread across all these jurisdictions. And, um, you know, we've been paying close attention to it in Canada, especially in watching it track across uh, Alberta in the free ranging population. And, you know, they have a, an excellent program there, a surveillance program. So they have a, a really good handle on, on the distribution of the disease and where it's showing up. Um, but you know, every year it's moving closer west to, to our border. So, so <clears throat> Saskatchewan and Alberta are the only two provinces in Canada other than the one incident in Quebec. That's right. Of Just, a captive, captive red deer, which they that's right. got rid of the herd and a portion of wild animals around that herd. So. That's right. There was one, one farm in a uh, red deer farm in Quebec last year that uh, had some positive animals. Fortunately, they sampled the wildlife around that farm and they didn't find any uh, cases in the wild population. So that was really good because with this disease, uh, I mean, it's not e easy to manage at, at any level, but it's, it's certainly, you have a few more tools available in a captive facility than you do in the wild. Once it ends up in a wild population, mm -hmm. then um, there's very you know few options on, on how to deal with it. So it was uh, fortunate that that, uh, yeah. So British, so right now British Columbia is still <clears throat> CWD free, free province. That's uh, right. It's approaching, um, approaching the boundaries. Mm -hmm. So what, uh, when this gets into the free ranging wild deer, what, what has happened in other jurisdictions? Like what's the level of the consequences? How? Yeah, it's interesting because for a number of years, um, we were watching this disease in, in other jurisdictions and it tends to stay at a pretty low prevalence. Um, low proportion of animals um, in the population when it's first uh, introduced to a population. So, you know, a, a small number of those animals are impacted by the disease, but... Um, like one or two percent of yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, low. And, and you know, when the 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 numbers of animals affected in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan for, for, you know, the early years were, were sitting at these low prevalences. But, uh, you know, the more we understand about the disease now and the different transmission pathways, we're starting to understand uh, what we're seeing on the landscape a little bit better. And we can talk about transmission, but um, the longer... Uh, the longer the disease is in a population, um, you have 
you see an increase in the proportion of animals that are uh, affected. So it sits at this low uh, prevalence for a while, and then um, uh, now you know we're starting to get some uh, science to explain what's happening. But you start to see an increase in the prevalence of the proportion of animals affected. So um, coming back to you know the transmission pathways and and how that happens. So um, the, these prions in an inf infected animal are uh, shed through saliva, urine, feces, other biological fluids, biological materials. It can also be you know, shed into the environment um, by an infected carcass or any tissues of an infected carcass. And um, so then it's transmitted to other animals through either direct contact between animals or an animal's contact with a contaminated environment. And once these these prions end up in the environment, in the soil, they will persist there for a long time. Once they're there, they're long-lasting, and so um, you know they're likely to persist for several years, possibly decades. We don't really know how long they, they can remain active in, this, in the environment. Um, the other tricky thing is, like we talked about the characteristics of prions, they're essentially uh, impossible to destroy. Um, there's no practical way to destroy them because they're very resistant to the high heat and the UV. Um, there's Chemicals, some bleaches and bleaches, all that, yeah. Yeah, standard kind of disinfectants. Um, there's some new research on the horizon around um, composting, actually, and it's, it's really cutting edge and I and I don't know much about it yet but um, but it's looking like composting actually might be you know be a tool to break down these prions but for now we don't have practical tools to um, you know to decontaminate the environment we also don't have tools to detect prions in the environment or in um, you know potentially contaminated materials and so, so yeah. like on vegetation or on vegetation. in the soil. Yeah, yeah. The only way to, to you know, detect or diagnose the disease is by looking at tissues um, of the uh, lymph, lympho, lymphoid tissues or lymph nodes or um, part of the, the brain stem of a, a deceased animal. And we look at those tissues under a microscope and that's how it's diagnosed. But there's no other way to diagnose or detect these prions. There's, again, there's research on the horizon that is trying to develop techniques to uh, be able to test for the disease in live animals. You know, this has been an effort, you know, really um, uh, driven by the captive facilities and, and you know, farming that they, it, it would be such a useful tool to be able to, to test live uh, animals. But um, so far, um, those tests aren't reliable enough so so the the gold standard is is just this uh the technique that we use looking at the lymph lymph, um, lymph nodes and the brainstem of of dead uh, deer, yeah. elk moose so from the time that they're exposed until the time that you can actually detect that um what what's that time frame yeah great question that's another really tricky thing about this disease is it uh, has a very long incubation period. So once a, an animal is infected with the disease, it could take uh, upwards of 18 months, maybe two years, before uh, any symptoms start to exhibit, start to present themselves. 
And um, so you have these healthy looking animals. And, you know, I should note that most of the animals that test positive in North America are healthy looking hunter harvested animals, right? So you have these healthy, apparently healthy looking animals on the landscape, but once an animal is infected, they're uh, capable of shedding the, the prions and the infectious agent throughout the course of the disease, even before they start showing symptoms. And so, you, we, you know, you, I've heard of them referred to as these silent carriers on the land, right? And they're shedding the prions into the environment and, and potentially exposing other animals. But once we, in later stages of the disease, we start to see symptoms like, um, you know, very uh, thin animals, extreme weight loss. We see things like poor coordination, stumbling, trembling, you know, typical of a neurological type disease. And towards the end of this clinical stage, increased drinking, increased urination, um, you know, uh, increased uh, uh saliva production. Um, so it's interesting because these are all the modes that the disease, you know, these prions are shed and towards the end, the, the animals are just pouring them into the environment. But, um, but yeah. Curtis might have chronic wasting disease because he has periods of increased drinking <laughs> and saliva. Curtis, <laughs> yeah, end of the... <laughs> Sorry. Well, I hope yeah. not. I hope not. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, ultimately, you know, the disease is, is always fatal. There's there's still no treatment. There's, there's no vaccine. Um, there is research trying to develop those... Um, you know, treatment or vaccine options, but to date, uh, we have nothing. So, so um, it's fatal in every case once an animal is infected. And even if they did develop a vaccine, if you're talking about like deer, I mean, how would you administer that, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. they, yeah. they, even when they fly an aircraft to count them in the wintertime, they're, oh, yeah. they know they're only seeing a portion of the animals and they have computer mm -hmm. models that adjust for what they don't see. So Again, it, it, it would, that would be... Um, it might be a, a tool that can be used in the captive industry, yeah. in the farming industry. They could, you know, but but we're not there yet. Ho you know, hopefully science can, um, you know, catch up and give us give us some more tools like that. Yeah, but, well, uh, that's that's yet. what Doug Dern said, right? By the time, pay for the science, because there's a, as many questions, there are more questions than answers. That's right. At this time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Can it also be transmitted in vitro? Uh, yeah, actually, there there are some studies that indicate that a, like a mother can um, pass pass the um, the prions uh, to their offspring. It can it can be transmitted Holy. through the milk. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. through the milk. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Uh, it 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 looks like um, you know urine is probably one of the primary um, modes of transmission, but uh, you know there are. The prions can be present in all parts of the body. They really do concentrate in in the central uh, nervous system tissue and the lymph nodes and the organs, but it, they can be present in a lower concentration in, in the meat and in all other tissues. So, I just read um, something recently, um, a journal article, that I, I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing, but they were saying that because the um the cwd prions like they have this long period 
that they're essentially like keeping the animal alive and they're using that animal to spread it into the environment and Mm -hmm. they're saying there must be some benefit to the animal like they're, they're, you know, like how there's, there's some parasites and, you know, in different areas in nature and stuff that, um, like, a like that have that relationship, right? There's, there's the ones where if you get it and it's like, you know, 12 hours, you know, like, mm. like they're, they're really, they're really quick. And then there's these mm. ones that kind of like move, move you along like that. Like they're, yeah. they're one, they're using, you know, the host to, mm-hmm. you know, um, move it around. But it was, it was kind of, kind of interesting, you know, that, that thought that they're, you know, they're. I don't know what it would be, some sort of a, uh, yeah. a a benefit. It had something to do with the, the also about like that the body's not forcing um, the 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 prions to evolve very much. So hmm. it it's almost like the body's not trying to fight it, sort sort of thing. So yeah, it was. Well, yeah, I mean how it, I mean ultimately the body might just be recognizing it as a protein, right? Like a normal thing. I you know these prion diseases seem to be. incredibly effective at, um, you know, just, it's interesting because we know so much more about bacteria and viruses and, and these type parasites, these types of, um, disease causing agents that have been around for a lot longer. Um, we have tools to, to deal with those, right. But, you know, on the on the scale of our understanding of, you know, disease causing agents, prions are really new and there's still a lot we don't know about them Yeah, and it, and it makes it very tricky. But, um, but yeah, some of the ways that they present and they affect the animal, it just seems to me that they're just very effective at <laughs> spreading and almost using that animal to spread them around. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, um, Let's kind of like look at your program, like kind of the history of your program and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you've been up to, what, what sort of the goals and objectives and bring us up to now. Sure. Yeah. So um, we've had a CWD program in BC since 2002. And um, the, the primary focus has always been in pre- prevention, to focus on prevention through um, increasing awareness through like our outreach program and uh, reducing the risks of, of the disease getting to BC. Now, uh, up until this summer, BC was considered low risk for, you know, having, having the disease, the presence of CWD in our province. And, and so, you know, that was our goal was just you know, prevention. And, and if it, if it was ever going to uh, show up, um, than early detection, but we, but we've always really focused on just reducing those risks and increasing the awareness so people are aware of um, the the risks and and up until this summer our, our biggest risk factor for for chronic wasting disease in BC was essentially our our proximity to the the nearest cases in in wildlife which is in Alberta and. Um, uh, you know, it was considered that our biggest threat of, of the disease getting to BC would be um, by by uh, the import of an infected carcass or an infected um, material being brought back to BC from one of these uh, CWD affected areas. And so, um, but but overall, we've been at low risk 
I think in part because of some proactive management strategies. We, we've never farmed native cervid species in BC, so we weren't impacted you know, through that industry and um, avoided that luckily. Um, you know, we, and so we're, <clears throat> so that's, um, like white-tailed deer or elk, it, it's not legal to farm those. We don't, yeah, we don't farm any native cervid species. Yeah, um, but we have but we <clears> a few fallow deer. we do a small number of cervid farms in the province. I think at last count there were 10 uh, fallow deer farms and we have one reindeer, reindeer farm. Reindeer farm with, I think there's only 10 or 11 animals there. As far, I think they're... Um, um, those animals are used in the movie industry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, Christmas that shows, right? <coughs> exactly. Yeah. There's um, probably 12. One's got a painted red nose. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but those, those, um, the, the cervid farms in BC are considered pretty low risk. Um, of course, those those species are are considered susceptible to the disease, but but relatively low risk. Um, yeah, so so we've we've really focused on um, you know uh, some some regulatory tools to reduce some risks. Uh, so we have a, a regulation that prohibits the import of intact carcasses that are harvested outside of the province. Um, to ensure that those, especially those high-risk tissues, so those tissues that we were talking about have um, higher concentrations potentially of the prions, the the central nervous system tissue, the you know, the organs, the lymph nodes. Um, if uh, if a hunter is hunting in an area that's affected by CWD, we really want those uh, tissues to stay there. Um, you know that even those jurisdictions. Um, you know, uh, I'd, I'd recommend that those car- those tissues are not moved around long distances because that can further contribute to the spread. Um, so yeah, so our the the import regulation just uh, um, hunters have to they can bring the meat back. Yeah, they so can, hunters are are boning their animals out. It's called right. leaving the bones. They're cleaning and bleaching the skulls hot, and stuff hard. before. That's right. Bring the <clears> antlers <throat> back with the skull and plate. And they're basically bringing up wrapped, maybe even frozen meat back, wrapped right? Wrapped meat, exactly right. And then they wait in BC for like Alberta or Saskatchewan to that's right to give them test results back, don't they? Yes. They they submit there yes. and then yeah in in. Uh, uh, in certain areas in, in Alberta, it's mandatory to turn in a head for testing. And um, even in the voluntary areas, you can still turn in a head for testing. And so then those hunters are um, informed of those results. Right. So that, that was one of our biggest risks before was a hunter bringing something back from Alberta or Saskatchewan, not necessarily the movement of like captive elk or yeah, yeah, that okay. that wasn't a, a, a significant risk factor for us. The the biggest risk factor was, um, you know, the proximity of those cases in the in in the native uh, or the sort of the wild populations. And we were they as even though they were getting closer every year, um, they were you know moving relatively slowly across Alberta. Um, but yeah, importing of of infected tissues was a big risk. But then. Um, this summer, we had our first um, uh, detection of uh, CWD and some white-tailed deer down in, in Libby, Montana, which is 
I think only 60 kilometers south of our BC Montana border. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2017, Montana had their first cases of CWD. Um, in uh, through their surveillance program, they had some hits in the hunter samples in white-tailed deer and mule deer, and um, the all of these most of these cases were just south of the CWD areas of Alberta and Saskatchewan. So it wasn't a uh, a big surprise that there was spillover into that was the, on the east side of the Rockies. That's right. So it was all still on the east side of the Rockies, and then you know this this June we had confirmation of that first white-tailed deer in Libby, Montana, and um, now Montana is really focusing surveillance around a, a ten-kilometer radius of of that initial case. And, you know, through that work, uh, they have six cases now, um, five confirmed and one, one suspect, all in white-tailed deer from the Libby area. And are those wild? Those are all wild, all yes. Wild. Yeah, they're deer within an urban area. Um, so it's a, it's a unique ecosystem. Um, but, um, but, yeah, they're, they're, they're wild deer. Um, but we still don't know. Um, they're focusing their, their sampling around that Libby area. Um, but we, we still don't know uh, how the, these cases of CW ended up in Libby. Um, we're not sure if it's, if it's more widespread or if it's an isolated uh, situation. So, so Libby's, or Montana uh, State, um, their wildlife and uh, wildlife health groups are working really hard to, to get that information to confirm the prevalence of the disease and the situation in that area. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it certainly um, was the closest cases to BC to date. So it significantly increased our, our risk to the uh, wild populations in BC. So, so our response to that is um, this fall, we need to go out and, and, and increase our sampling so that we can confirm our CWD free status. Um, we're still, you know, f- focusing on on prevention. We haven't detected the disease here yet, but we have to look for it, and we need to ramp up our efforts in terms of surveillance to um, get the sample size that's required to have confidence in those results, so that we can uh, report back to the, you know to the hunting community and and to the BC public and and maintain that confidence in in a healthy uh, wildlife resource and healthy wildlife populations in BC. So, um, yeah. So for the last few years, you've been running a volunteer program um, Mm. here in the Kootenai region and Mm. in the Peace. Yeah, we've uh, identified, based on the, the proximity of the cases in Alberta, we considered the eastern part of BC as as our high risk area. So we've been focusing surveillance in the eastern part in the Peace region and in the in the Kootenai region for the last several years. Surveillance has always been based on voluntary submission of uh, surveyed heads, what we collect the samples from for testing. Um, we have ex- uh, accepted hunter harvested uh, samples, roadkill samples. We have some um, opportunistic samples from our some mortality investigations that we've done through our wildlife programs, and and then any uh, 
clinical or sick animal that we see exhibiting any symptoms, um, we definitely will uh, sample those animals if we have an opportunity. But we've had a very small number of those and they've all come back negative. The vast majority of samples that we've had through our surveillance program have been hunter samples. And um, yeah, to date we've we've tested over 3,900 and uh, 3,900 animals, and we've had no positive cases. Um, however, uh, our um, you know we've had great participation in certain areas, especially in the Kootenays. Um, but our our sample size, our sample numbers have not consistently um, provided the an adequate sample size to give us confidence in that disease free status. And so because, uh, you know, these cases in Libby, it's that much closer, it's right on our doorstep. We, we, we really need to, um, ramp things up and increase the samples so that, you know, we can, uh, have confidence in those results and, and, you know, provide that assurance to the BC public. Yeah. So was, if I remember your numbers, um, here in the Kootenai region last year, you got ni- 99, 99 samples, 99 voluntary, voluntary samples. Yeah. Now it did, did I read this right? You, you need around 300 ish Well, per, per kind of like unit, right? Like sort of like herd unit or management unit. Well, those numbers were um, were provided to us. Uh, we requested uh, a risk assessment be conducted and a sample size, a target sample size calculated. So we work with um, some folks that have that expertise in in our you know agriculture ministry and with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. So so they provided those numbers and they did that risk assessment. Um, a couple of years ago, which uh, came back with that number of 300 samples per region per year. Now, this was based on the risk factors at that time. So now that we have a different situation with uh, the new the cases in Libby, the the risk uh, the level of risk has changed, and so we're going to have to work with those um, uh, those people with the expertise to help us uh, calculate a new target sample size. Yeah, and that's something that we will be doing uh, before this uh, this hunting season so that we, we know those target numbers. And and what we're, we're likely going to do is, is break the region down into some uh, um, smaller areas so that we can really focus in on, on local risk factors and and, and then we'll have the, those numbers that we'll need for for that, uh, you know, statistical confidence in, in those results. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So to make that transition to getting um, more samples, mm-hmm. um, the province has gone to a mandatory That's right. order now. That's right. Can you just tell us a little bit about that, how uh, it came about? Absolutely. Yeah. So the province has issued a a general order uh, under the Animal Health Act that will require uh, uh, hunters that have harvested white-tailed deer or mule deer in management units along the BC Montana border. So it includes seven management units, uh, four one through four seven. So any deer harvested in those management units 
in the 2019 hunting season, um, it's a legal requirement to submit those heads for CWD testing. Yeah, so that's basically going to cover um, from the Flathead Valley um, in southeastern BC or mm-hmm. nor- northwestern Montana, mm-hmm. the, the Flathead kind of glacier area, mm-hmm. um, over into the Roosevelt um, area in Eureka, Montana, just that part of BC, uh, and moving like towards the Newgate area. That's getting a little closer to Libby, um, the Yak mm-hmm. drainages, and then yeah. just just south of Nelson. Yeah, right to um, Preston. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is getting mm-hmm. probably about the closest point to Libby is somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah, and we, okay. um, you know, we made that determination based on what we know about you know animal movement patterns and and are, you know focusing in on that high risk risk zone. Um, but we have, you know, we have every reason to expect, um, uh, you know, hunter, <clears throat> hunter participation in this program. Um, hunters have, have been so supportive of our, our program and, and they really are, uh, a vital part of monitoring, um, wildlife health, uh, in these populations. And we so, uh, appreciate that, but it was just, uh, a, a level of um, this level of risk. We didn't want to mess around. We needed to make sure that we had the sample size so that we could be really confident in, in the numbers that we got. Um, so, so that is the plan for this this fall. Mm-hmm. And and um, yeah, like you said, we got 99 samples from the Kootenai region last year. And um, based on harvest numbers, we you might be getting something closer to 2,000. So um, that will certainly give us the the sample size that we need um, to have confidence in those results. Um, but we anticipate too that e- even if we reached a sample size that we needed um, for that statistical confidence, um, you know, the, the hunting public is, is probably uh, g- gonna wanna know if the, the animal that they've harvested is healthy. And so, um, Regardless of, of the number that we're going to require for, you know, that, that scientific analysis and that risk assessment, you know, we will, we will are committed to testing those animals for the hunting public and, and uh, are committed to giving them that assurance. So, so yeah, we're, um, we're, we're setting up a number of new drop-off locations across the region. We'll have 13 uh, freezer locations set up so far. Um, just to try and facilitate that drop off for the hunter and make it easy for them to to drop off the samples and um, we've hired a, a local CWD coordinator to help with some of the on the ground work and um, and you know I, I've been in the in the Kootenays this week kind of doing our first wave of, of outreach and um, just trying to get the information out there and and let everyone know our plans and um, you know, it's, but it's also really important for us that we get feedback from the community and we get input from the community, um, to, you know, guide us and to let us know how we can improve the program and how we can be doing things better. Um, I should also mention that, that this is, this is a, a real team effort that we're taking. Um, this, 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 uh, increased profile that, uh, the disease is getting has really, um, 
translated to the community rallying around us and we've formed this, uh, you know, uh, uh, a collaborative approach, um, to, to addressing this issue and responding, uh, uh, quickly to it so that we can, um, protect the wildlife in BC and keep the disease out of the province. So, so we have a, a provincial advisory committee, uh, that's made up of, um, uh, you know, uh, First Nations and a number of our stakeholder groups. The BC Wildlife Federation has been great. They've um, they bought us ten new freezers to support the surveillance effort. Um, we've got you know, the guides, uh, the guide outfitters, the BC Trappers, Wild Sheep Society, um, the uh, acad- our academic colleagues are helping to link us in with uh, the current, uh, you know, all the research programs that are going on. And um, we also have a, a regional working group with, um, you know, a lot of the same organizations with the East Kootenai Wildlife Association and um, the Livestock Association, the, the Tanaha First Nation has been incredible. They're, we're partnering with them to develop some indigenous specific uh, outreach material and and they're um, looking to hire a coordinator to coordinate uh, effort within their communities and local businesses have really stepped up too um, <sighs> with offering to host all of these freezers so we have you know the the meat cutters and a number of other businesses yeah so it's um yeah that's that's a great that's a great response and, oh it's, it's <clears throat> and I definitely it's uh, one that I, I would expect would happen here. Um, yeah. that's, that's definitely been, been, um, you know, ev- everything that's happened here that's wildlife and environment related, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the Kootenays anyways, you know, tends to always have that, that, um, that big collaborative approach. Pe- people put things aside and, and work together. So I'm um, glad they came through for you. So, oh yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's been inspiring. I'm really proud of, of the collaborations um, and uh, the relationships that we've we've built and continue to build. Provincially, the um, the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation has put some um, some money right. in, um, towards it as well, which which is a, a foundation that um, operates off of a surcharge that's on uh, hunting, trapping, um, fishing, and guide outfitter. Um, licenses and then they they turn and invest that back into yeah. uh, fish wildlife and habitat projects and they were very quick um, yeah. to step up because all of this like this whole flurry like happened in June Since right June. and and, and so everything August, where you are yeah. now mm-hmm. is is all fallen into place in in less than two months yeah. two months kind of time Ev- like, so everyone has really rallied yeah we reached out to the Habitat Conservation Trust Fund just this summer and just laid out the situation and, you know, presented the, the fact that we have an opportunity here. You know, the, the level of risk is is heightened for sure, but um, we're still in a good position. We have an opportunity to, um, uh, you know, rally and respond to this quickly and um, get the information that we need uh, through the surveillance to confirm that it's not here, but uh, you know, just just build that uh, that the infrastructure for um, for an effective program moving forward, so that we're well positioned to you know 
keep the this disease out of our our wildlife populations and keep them healthy mm-hmm. yeah so so these the relationships have been um, key to that you know we could not do this by ourselves so I'll, you know although it's a, a top priority for um, for our our program and for for my ministry that I work for but uh, but yeah it's really as a team effort that's awesome. Yeah. Well, okay, so what does a drop-off center look like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a, that's a good good segue there because what I'd like to do now is just kind of let's let's walk through. Um, I'm a hunter. I got a deer. Now what? All right. Yeah. So. So our, our drop-off locations, I mean, the first thing is we want everyone to know where they are so you can find one of these drop-off stations. Um, so that information can be found on our website. We'll have a list and we'll have an, um, a map with the details. Okay, I'll put that on the show notes and get it up on our Facebook page and stuff. So. Excellent. We also have information on our website um, and at the stations on, on the instructions on what to do. So you're a hunter, you've harvested a deer, um, you find one of these stations where we'll have a, a freezer set up. We have all of the supplies that you need. Um, so you'll get there. We'll have, uh, you know, you have, have the deer head. Uh, if, uh, if the hunter wants to keep the antlers, um, they can cut off the antlers with the skull plate. That's no problem because the, the tissues that we need for testing are at the back of the throat and the base of the skull. So we'd actually uh, prefer it if hunters would take the antlers with them to make more room in the freezers. But uh, yeah, there's there's often concerns from hunters that they they wouldn't be able to keep the antlers. But uh, you know, we encourage you to take the antlers with the skull plate. That's no problem. For those hunters out there that are interested in doing a, a European mount, um, there's instructions on how to do that. You just have to remove the, the lower jaw uh, with some, some the tissue on the roof of the mouth and the back of the throat. You can bag that separately and then you can take the you know, upper jaw and the rest of the head with the antlers. Um, Okay. Yeah, that's that's definitely be a, a question that you know hunters have been asking. Mm-hmm. Not not that um, that it was a, a game game stopper. Um, mm-hmm. You know that they wouldn't they wouldn't submit. You know if they got a nice a nice big um, buck that they wanted to you know do a European mount on. Um, I I did see people like posting and making comments and stuff. Going, yeah, I mean I have to do this because of what this means right now. But mm-hmm. so that that's good. I mean I, I think that's a question out there. Um, both things are important to hunters. You know, keeping mm-hmm. something um, to remember. You know the hunt you know, keeping the meat and, but then also contributing to science and conservation. So I think that's an important thing to, to, for, for people to know, is it? What about the the neck? You got to bring the neck in? Not necessarily. We, um, we want part of the neck still attached because of those lymph nodes that are at the back of the throat. But, uh, you know, generally if you remove the, um, the head kind of at that last vertebrae, that's uh, that's lost. That's enough. Okay. That's enough. Ne- necros are still in the picture. Yeah, yeah. See, see, I'm like. <laughs> I was stressed about. I'm that. like. <laughs> yeah, we we love our we love our necros. I mean, I even like carve all like the jaw muscle the muscles off the jaw and the back of the skull and put it in the hamburger pile. It's uh-huh. like 
there's I keep everything so um, <laughs> you, you'll get these you'll get this perfectly clean yeah, yeah no <laughs> it's, skull. it's important that we get all, you know that information to hunters because I know they they want to do the right thing and it's a, just a matter of communicating that information and you know those instructions so those instructions will be at every freezer probably taped right to the the top of the freezer um, and we also will provide uh, an ear tag so it's very important that the the hunter completes that ear tag that we get the hunter contact information so that we can report results back and uh, some location information so we know where that an- animals come from so then the hunter would take that completed ear tag and uh, attach it to the head either on the ear or uh, you know through a, the eye orbital if the head skinned out. Uh, we provide zap straps for that and we'll provide garbage bags so once the ear tag is attached to the head you put the head in the garbage bag, tie it off, put it in the freezer and um, yeah and then someone so n- from our program will be collecting those heads on a regular basis so that we can collect the samples and get them off to the lab. Okay. Now, so when we say um, you're, you're, I'm, I'm there with my deer head. I'm filling out uh, a tag with my contact information. So, or like, you want my name, my phone number, address, yeah, uh, FID number. Do you want my hunter number? Name and uh, and phone number for sure. We also ask for the hunter number. We use that sometimes for a cross reference. If if we can't read the name or we get the phone number, it's nice to or you know there's a. Um, it's nice to have a backup so we can cross-reference if we need to. There's some other information on the card, you know, check a box for species and sex. And, um, you know, if, if uh, the hunter observed, observe, observed anything abnormal about the animal, then there's a, an area you can write in those comments, but that's not a okay. uh, necessary, but we've just provided that space in case there are any additional comments. Okay, perfect. Mm-hmm. Now... <clears throat> The hunter gets a deer out in the field. He's going to transport that animal to like one of two places, either home to process it yourself. Mm -hmm. So you'd be required for that head or antlers to accompany you to your place of residence or Mm -hmm. to the butcher shop. That's right. So then all of the butcher shops in the region are going to have these stations, right? We have several. Uh, we have several participating in the in the project. I'm not sure if we've captured all of the butcher shops, okay. but but there'll um, be a key one, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, we started there because it's saving it's saving the hunter from having to make an extra uh, trip if they're already taking their animal to be processed at the meat cutter. Then that just seemed like a good option. But now, if if let's say they they have a nice big buck that they are, you know, going to skin, like cape out or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, will they be allowed to like go to the butcher, drop the meat off or go to my house um, and then take care of all, all of that? Um, whether if I'm going to keep it for a euro and cut the jaw and the back of the throat off, then come back to one of these stations. Yeah, they have, they uh, have a one week from, from the, the date of harvest okay. to submit the head. Okay, perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this yeah. isn't like you just have to like straight line out of the bush to your no, nearest you, freezer. You okay. have a week for sure. Okay. Yeah, I should also mention about the the general order that this is a um, a, a short term uh, one time tool that we have. It's only going to be in effect for the twenty nineteen uh, hunting season. 
Um, so it's effective from September 1st until uh, the end of the hunting season. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, when we say location information, um, I, I know this is very important for you in the program to be relatively precise and descriptive with that. So mm-hmm. if a positive case is found, you're able to zero in on the geographic location as quickly a- as possible. Um, are you talking about like a GPS coordinate on the tag or a kilometer marker on a logging road, a junction of a creek? Like we, For our surveillance purposes, um, we've always just asked for a management unit at a minimum. And often... Uh, hunters will provide a management unit and maybe some other landmarks, which is great. Uh, but for surveillance purposes and reporting back, um, you know, we, we will hopefully not get any positives this year. And, yeah. But so it's, you know, it is important to have that, that general location information um, for those types of, uh, for our surveillance currently. Um if we get a positive, then that hunter contact information is critical because then we can follow up with the hunter to first inform them. And that will be our, our very first call is to the hunter to let them know that we have a positive. Um, but at that point, we can uh, inquire with the hunter about the specifics of, of where that animal was harvested. For general surveillance purposes, we don't need those specific uh, the specific uh, UTM coordinates. Yeah, or, okay. Yeah. But... Um uh, if you wanted to, it would be a good idea even just like to keep them in case you are contacted. I think most people would be able to pull up Google Earth and probably mm. show you where, you know, mm. where, where, where they were if, yeah. if they were asked. Most, okay. yeah. most photos on your phone now are geotagged too, whether you have That's service right. or not. So you yeah. can go in and look at all the metadata yeah. from all that stuff and pull it off that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, you know, animals move, right? So... So, you know, having a specific uh, location information is, is important, but we also have to recognize that that animal's been moving around the landscape. So, can, you know, taking into consideration what uh, you know, typical ranges, animal m- movement and ranges are, you know, we'll have to take all those things into consideration as well. Okay. Now, what about animals that are killed on the highway? Yeah, yeah. The roadkill samples are a, a very important um sample for disease surveillance because if there's sick animals out there they're going to be more vulnerable to being hit by a car so we're working with our uh, ministry of transport and the highway contractors to access some some road kills we're also working with the uh, the trappers because they're permitted to pick up uh, road kills for for bait and they've been uh, an excellent source of those samples for us yeah yeah and they you know, so so we're also targeting roadkill samples, absolutely. Okay, good, mm-hmm. good. Um, now the next big question uh, in hunters' minds are, um, and, and I, th- I think it's important to keep this into perspective, um, this is still part of a prevention program. It's just surveillance. You're increasing the intensity of the number of samples that you're, that you're trying to gather. Um, it is a little closer Um to British Columbia now, obviously people are going to be, you know, a little bit concerned that something's going to show up this year. Um, how is the process of testing the samples, getting the results back and contacting the hunters? Like what, 
how long is that process going to be and how is that that going to happen right because obviously sort of the 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 health authority advice that's out there is you know is being recommended not to eat um cwd infected animals even though um you know there's hasn't been a a, a case yet of of a person contracting it um but it's still a preventative measure measure that health health officials are are saying so people are going to want to know is it like am i going to get a call like in a week a month um, how's that going to happen yeah. how long do i, I have do i, I got to freeze my tenderloins or can i <laughs> i just you know do them straight I up i wish we could have a turnaround like that um but uh we we send all of our samples to the university of saskatchewan um to their program cuz they have the the state of the art equipment and the trained uh you know the expertise to do these uh samples to do these diagnostics. Um, in, in previous years, we've always left our samples, um, collected them over the hunting season. I'll collect all of the samples in January and we send them off to the lab. And, um, at that point, you know, it's, it's several months sometimes to get those results back. And so for this year, we knew that that was not going to be good enough. So we reached out to the lab in Saskatchewan, and and we've um, uh, they appreciate the situation that they that we're in. They've gone through it too, <laughs> right? So, um, so we've we have arranged that if we can sample um, the BC samples throughout the hunting season in batches and submit them to the lab, you know, in kind of a, a regular rotation, then they've committed to get us results back uh, between two to four weeks. So. Um, so we're going to be collecting these samples at least uh, once a month, probably more, a couple times a month, and and collecting the samples and getting them off to the lab as soon as possible. So it's not ideal. Uh, realistically, a hunter might be waiting a, a you know four or six weeks for a result, um, but uh, but we'll do our best to to keep that turnaround time as short as possible. Okay. Now, um, if um, this did happen. A hunter got a call and had a positive testing animal. Like, kind of what? What then? Um, so obviously got meat in the freezer. Mm-hmm. What? What might that person expect? Um, are they going to be required to hand over the meat? Are they going to be advised what mm-hmm. is the best options? Yeah. And then, if they do want to turn it over, dispose of it. What do they do? Yeah. So. Uh, the health experts do strongly recommend that uh, an animal that tests positive for CWD uh, or any prion disease is, is not, uh, does not enter the food chain, is not consumed by humans. Um, so, but that said, it's, uh, it's up to the hunter. There's no legal requirement for them to turn over the head. They uh, are within their right to hold on to that meat and eat it if they choose to do so. Um, I'm sorry, you said there's no legal requirement for them to turn over the head or the meat? Sorry, the, the meat. The meat. Okay. The meat, yeah. Once it's, uh, once it's uh, tested positive, um, we would encourage that they, they do. But from, from our perspective as well, I mean, that's coming from the health experts. From our perspective, we now know that that meat contains prions. They might, you know, uh, we want to make sure that the, that material is not getting into the environment. Right. 
And so that's another reason why we would encourage the hunter to turn the meat over to our program so that we can dispose of it properly um, and, and, you know, not risk those prions getting into the environment. So, yeah. Yeah. So we don't want somebody taking it all out and chucking it over the bank on a logging road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause that could just contribute to further spread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, those are, um, th- those are some key questions that I've seen that have been floating around, um, out there, um, with people. Now, what about somebody that is not from this region? Um, so that happens a lot in BC. You have people that like on these big trips, they'll come from Prince George, mm-hmm. you know, they'll set up a big camp and sometimes, you know, like camp all gets closed down and you know I got to get back to work Monday morning and and they they jettison out of here in the middle of the night kind of thing um they may end up taking that back with them to you know from the Kootenays to Prince George do they have options elsewhere in the province to go and say hey I harvested this deer in the Kootenays but I had to get home and it was the middle of the night yeah, the- theoretically, you know, it wouldn't. We're trying to make it as convenient for hunters to, to, you know, submit those heads locally. Ideally, we would keep them in this region, uh, you know, just in case we ever did get a positive. Then we don't really want to encourage those animals being moved around too much. But, um, but, uh, but, yeah, if 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 it wasn't possible for the hunter to submit the head before they left the Kootenai region. They can submit the head to uh, any of our wildlife offices, um, contact the, the CO, the COS, um, and make arrangements. Uh, it would, it would have to be, you know, making a phone call and making arrangements during business hours probably, but, uh, all of our wildlife, uh, biologists, um, would, uh, would accept a head if, if, uh, the hunter wanted to make those arrangements and, okay. Um, we do have some freezer locations in other parts of the province. Uh, in the Peace region, we have some freezer locations, and we have a uh, some freezers set up for our, uh, a different um, health surveillance program in the Thompson uh, for bovine tuberculosis. And so um, all of those freezer locations are available on our website. We have uh, a map uh, on our website that, that um, will list all of the freezer drop-off locations across the province. So, you know, the hunter okay. can, can access that information and, um, you know, also get the contact information for one of our wildlife offices if, if they need to make those arrangements. But Okay. But the best advice would be is like, hey, if you're coming down on a big trip and you're here for two weeks, um, work it into your schedule that, you know, you're going to have to give yourself mm-hmm. some time to be here mm-hmm. to do drop heads off in the region at a regional. We'd really like to yeah. encourage okay. that. And, you know, that's why we're trying to set up these freezer locations. And um, it might uh, depend on the specific uh, drop-off station, but some some very, very well may be, you know, accessible 24-7. So if it's the middle of the night, you know, they can drop it off. Okay. The, those details will be on the website. Okay. And, and that other, or that out of region hunter, it's still mandatory for them to drop it off at some, at wherever they happen to be within a week, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. If it's harvested in those management units, yeah. four one through four seven. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So now the the province has updated its um, surveillance CWD surveillance and response plan, and it's sort of broken down into a lot of the things that we've talked about um, here. Um, you know what CWD is, how it operates, how it's transmitted, the risk evaluation. Um, one of the things uh, I got noted here, which we didn't cover, is the province prohibited the use of um, natural urine scents and attractants. Yeah. Is that last year or the year that, before? That was 2018. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a, a precautionary measure, and I believe... It was either one of the eastern states or was it a study or or a, just a risk that because the urine is coming f- is a product of the captured servid industry that's one of the that's right extra revenue streams is <laughs> streams um, is selling revenue it's a revenue stream um, selling the deer yes. urine and then hunters you know mm-hmm. coat themselves s- in it. yeah s- s- some yeah. do no or, or it just breaks and gets all over the their gear oh, dear. your hunting partners pants and then he stinks <laughs> um, but yeah we decided to um, implement that regulation as in as a precautionary measure um, it has been uh, you know confirmed through research that urine can contain prions um, but like I spoke about before we have no way to uh, test these materials for prions so although the risk is likely very low we cannot say that it's a a zero risk and so we didn't want to take any chances of potentially bringing material like that into the into the province so yeah we we issued that uh, uh, regulation as a as another um, proactive preventative measure yeah there are a number of um theoretical uh vectors that can can move this disease around we touched on a few of them a little bit um by far the the most significant one that has contributed to the spread of cwd is the movement of live infected animals um whether that's through natural movement of animals on the landscape or through anthropogenic or human means through, you know, captive uh, deer. Um, But there are a number of theoretical um, uh, uh, vectors that may be contributing to the spread. This, um, you know, biological materials, urine-based sense is one. Uh, We talked a little bit about the um, plant material. Uh, It's, uh, at this point, it's a, a theoretical risk, but it has been demonstrated through research that these uh, prions, they they can not only be on the surface of plants, but they will actually form these uh, chemical bond to the plant to adhere themselves to the plant. So they really stick on there and can move around. Uh, the same the same research uh, study demonstrated that if there was a high enough concentration of prions in the soil, the plants would actually uptake those prions and the prions would move through the tissues of the plants and grow with the plant right out into their their leaves so potentially if a an animal came and consumed that plant material they could be uh, exposed to the disease yeah right so so that uh, what is a, a new that um, study was published in 2015 before that we didn't really understand that plant material could be a potential vector. 
Um, so uh, there, there is a risk, you know, after the, the big forest fires we had in BC the last few years, um, there was a lot of rangeland destroyed and um, they, uh, the province imported a lot of, of hay and feed to support the livestock. And, um, from Alberta and Saskatchewan, yeah. From various places, right? And so um, that was an opportunity for us to reach out to, uh, you know, our, our partners in uh, the range program and agriculture and, and different uh, stakeholder groups, the Cattlemen's Association. And um, at, this, at this point, you know, we don't have any mechanisms to restrict that material, but we're just trying to... Uh, increase the awareness of this potential risk and and encourage our partners to um, you know take any measures that they're uh, able to to uh, uh, avoid sourcing feed and uh, grains any of these types of things from areas that we know to be affected with CWD. Yeah. Yeah. And and again the ability to test vegetation like take a sample of hay and send it to the lab that that's not possible, is it? They can detect prions in a in a like a research setting, but there's no practical way to test this material in the field. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you couldn't have like check stations between the borders and mm-hmm. someone, you know, do a do a dye test or something on the on the halode and give them the thumbs up or oh, turn yeah. them around. So yeah, talking, that's yeah. Talk about um, buy time and support science. You know, yeah. those kind of tools would be so useful. Yeah, yeah. We just don't have them yet. Yeah, to 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 develop the science around under, understanding um, whether we can uh, clear clear hay and grains would be important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So now in in the province's um, uh, surveillance and response plan, um, mm-hmm. there are some steps. I, I know this is um, sort of sort of moving beyond just sort of this in, increased surveillance um, in the collection of heads, um, but there are some some general steps that the province may take um, as an early response measure um, if a positive animal is is detected. That's right. So maybe let's just you know, Talk walk through that a little bit and, and let people know what that might look like. Sure, sure. So just to give the background, we've uh, the surveillance and response plan for CWD in BC was developed over 20 years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been, and it's been updated a few times uh, over the years. But with, uh, with all of the new information we're gaining about transmission pathways and the new research and and uh, the experiences uh, and lessons learned in other jurisdictions that have been dealing with this disease, it was really time for a, an overhaul of our of our plan in BC. So we uh, we worked with our our you know collaborative group of of uh, our with our advisory committee and our working groups um, to review the surveillance and response plan. To, so everyone had a chance to to contribute and advise on, on how we were doing it. Um, uh, and we, we also um, look to our, our colleagues um, in, in Montana for their, they had just completed a, a recent Montana um, surveillance and response plan for CWD in Montana. We also looked to the uh, association of um, 
Fish and Wildlife in the States. They, in 2018, they, they published a technical report on best management practices for CWD, which was, um, uh, you know, a, a, a long list of collaborators and, and contributors to that document. And it really um, uh, summarized all the recent research and management strategies and, you know, across, across jurisdictions. And it was a, a, a really uh, important and useful tool, I think, for, for all of us to look at and learn from what has been done in other places. And so when we re uh, when we updated our surveillance and response plan in BC, we were we were looking to those documents for guidance. Um, so yeah, so we we uh, have this new plan now. It's also available online if if anyone wants to to look at it. It's on our website. But uh, yeah, if we get a positive in in BC in our wildlife, it's it's really important that. Um, you know, rather than having a, like a knee jerk reaction to it, it's really important that we take a, you know, a, a scientific based systematic approach to uh, evaluating and assessing the risk. So, so we don't know exactly uh, what steps might be taken, but in the plan, it outlines in general what those steps might look like, um, you know, following uh standard approaches to, you know, disease detections. Um, though Helen, our, our wildlife veterinarian, would lead those efforts, um, but it, it would be supported and advised um, by our collaborative groups, our advisory committee and the, and the working group. Um, first thing, like I said, the first thing we would do is, is uh, confirm the the positive so if we if we got a positive case you always have to we always maintain a backup sample so we would confirm that it is in fact a positive so you'd you'd call up the lab and say can you retest sample we one always, two three we always hold back uh, uh, a backup sample here as well so that we know so we have um, you know we can track where that sample has come from and um, so if if that was confirmed we would call the hunter and, and notify the hunter. Um, then, uh, you know, the it's really important that we have the proper uh, lines of communication and responsibilities outlined in, in that event. And so uh, Helen would initiate um, the, you know, communication trees or incident command system, if you're familiar with that. Yep. Um, uh, in general, similar to what Montana is doing now, we would identify an initial response area around that uh, uh, index case or that initial positive diagnosis. And we would evaluate and uh, confirm the uh, from samples from within that area, which would be a, a 10 kilometer radius. Um, we would collect samples from that area, confirm disease prevalence, the distribution, the species affected. So so that means that somebody uh, or groups of people would be going back out to that area and mm -hmm. harvesting more deer. It, you know, and again, it, it depends the time of year that we, we get that uh, positive diagnosis. It might be from a hunter's uh, sample in the beginning of the hunting season, in which case, if, you know, if we're in the hunting season, then we can work with the hunting community to collect samples from that area and focus on that area. 
if it's a, a clinical animal or a roadkill that we pick up in March, then, you know, we don't have the same tools and, and we're not going to want to wait until the hunting season. We'll have to take actions uh, sooner to collect samples and, and get this information that we need to then inform the next steps. And, um, and, and that's really key here is that we can't say exactly what our, our response would be um, without that information, without knowing uh, where it's found, when it's found, the species, what are the population dynamics in that area, what are the land use uses in that area. Um, depending on when we find it, if we find it tomorrow, if we find it in 10 years, we may have very different uh knowledge of, uh, you know, the science transmission pathways, we might have different management tools at that time. Um, so, so it's really hard to say exactly what that response would look like, but, um, but the, in general, the steps are outlined in our surveillance and response plan. And, and the first step is, is collecting that information, that critical information that will inform what a response would look like. And, and that would be done uh, you know, following that uh, that framework in our in our plan, but done collaboratively with our partners, um, mm -hmm. so we can all work together, and they would be supporting and ad ad uh, advising um, those efforts. Right. So it's it's really a, um, it's a, it's sort of a stepwise process of going sort of mm -hmm. from a larger scale um, and your program is increasing the intensity of samples being collected to let's just say something shows up over here mm -hmm. going into that area and then increasing sampling intensity in an area there maybe of a particular species that it showed up in and getting more samples from that area mm -hmm. and then looking at what that data is telling you exactly. um, what species was it in what age class adults versus young male versus female those sorts of things mm -hmm. and then that would allow um, like the regional advisory groups uh, and the experts and stuff to say what is that information telling us uh, what are our options what are some steps um, what are the risks where can this go the, these sorts of things so exactly. so I mean generally people don't like to hear that well we'll you know sort of like we'll sort of like develop the plan when the time arises they kind of mm -hmm. like to well what are you going to do now because uh, I mean to be honest the big question in everybody's mind out there is always going to is is and we saw it at the meetings so it's like are you going to go out and do these mass aerial calls right and it's and and I, and I know your response has been to it is is like well, we don't really know. Um, the stepwise approach is to get information, see what that tells us, get some more information, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then look at at our steps. Yeah, and it's important to look to other jurisdictions too that have been dealing with this and, and what kind of uh, mitigation or response strategies that they've used and what's worked, Yep. right? Um, so... Unfortunately, there haven't been a lot of strategies that have been very effective because the disease continues to spread. So some of these, you know, intensive responses um, haven't necessarily worked in other areas. So it's you know that's not going to be our our go to. But that's that's why it's it's so important that we are are building the the capacity within our our collective team that we're going to have 
you know, all the, the right expertise and the, um, uh, the knowledge of, uh, the research, the knowledge of the other jurisdictions we, you know, on our, on our advisory team, we also have representatives from Alberta and Montana and, and, um, other jurisdictions that, ha- that have dealt with this yep. and their insight will be really important. Um, and so through our, through our efforts and our, you know, these collaborations, um, you know, my goal is just to make sure everyone is up to speed. And so that if we do detect a positive, we're ready, we're ready. We might not have a plan in writing yet, but you know, our, our, our network is in place. Our communications are in place. Um, we are keeping up to date on, on the science and the tools as best we can. So we will be able to react quickly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because we have that, that group in place. And that's the, uh, that was the advice from, uh, Brian Richards there. And the, we talked about at the beginning was get on it early and hit it hard. Um, yeah. and typically, um, you know, if, if this is right, the responses of hitting it hard in North America have been a fairly aggressive efforts to, to depopulate an area like a, 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 an initial epicenter of going in and reducing herd sizes to, to mm-hmm. try to prevent the, the spread. Yeah. Well, yeah, with, with high densities, um, of course, there's more opportunity for disease transmission. So that, that could be one approach to, um, to you know, slowing the spread and, um, and keeping prevalence, the po- you know, the proportion of animals that are mm-hmm. exposed uh, lower. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, and I think that's a really key thing too. I mean, the Kootenays are definitely, you know, our populations are down, um, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, it's debatable um, who you talk to, or what information you look at, people's opinions on, you know, whether whitetail populations are increasing or decreasing. Um, the data is showing that, you know, there's mm-hmm. a general upward trend in them over the last several decades. Um, there's people mm-hmm. feel, feel differently about that, but we do know um, populations, mule deer down, elk are down, um, moose numbers are down. So that may, um, you know, help, you know, yeah. a little bit because the places in the U.S. where, you know, they have some really severe problems and they've taken some really aggressive actions towards it, um, like s- some of the stuff I've seen, like in Wisconsin, they were talking about um, one or two of the counties there. Mm-hmm. They're talking in excess of a hundred whitetails per acre hmm. with the types of densities. So, so the deer to deer contact is just, is unbelievable, right? Like, I mean, yeah. hunters are harvesting tens of thousands of, you know, deer a year in, in those areas. So mm-hmm. their efforts to reduce or c- contain that have been, been pretty aggressive because they're dealing with a fairly high density, but it's a different situation here. So it might not be something exactly. that where we go. So pe- people shouldn't get, get freaked out about that. Yeah, right I was now. just going to say, um, we don't know, uh, how this disease might behave in BC on our, in our, you know, ecosystem and our landscape. Cause it's, it's pretty different from some of these other areas. Um, particularly with our, our predator populations, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah, we have different um, dynamics with wolves. We have grizzly bears, which I mean, they have, they have them in Montana, but, um, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's relatively new and CWD is new in Montana. So they don't yeah. maybe quite understand we, that interaction. Exactly. We, st- we still don't, we still don't know what, um, uh, what the situation is on the west side of the Rockies anyway in Montana. So, so yeah, it might behave very differently here than it has in other jurisdictions. So yeah, uh, all the more reason for us to, um, you know, uh, take a thoughtful and systematic approach to it and make sure that we have the information, the science-based information to inform those decisions and, and, uh, and work with our partners so that, you know, we're doing it together and, and, uh, um, making sure that all of those and interests are at the table. That That's a really key thing. And I think people have to realize, like, you know, we said how quickly all of this is coming together. And, and I think the province has done a good job um, up to learning about the cases in Montana, this, this in Libby, this, this spring, British Columbia was doing all the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that if you went out to the people in the know in North America, it's like, what should you be doing? And it's like, well, if you don't have a captive service in servant industry, you shouldn't have one, you know, you know movements, um, you know, the sense, the hunter carcasses, the outreach, the education, um, the, the, the surveillance programs, like, you were doing all that. Um, so mm-hmm. BC's been doing the right thing. Um, we're doing the right thing now by by increasing, you know, the intensity of sampling, even though it's just, it it's close by. So yeah. um, we just want to make sure it's not here. We want to confirm our CWD free status and <laughs> exactly. keep, it, keep it there. Yeah. So what are some of the other things that you heard in the community sessions this week? Hmm. Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of them. Um, uh, you know, I just I just keep coming back to um, the fact that you know, yes, of course, this is a disease that that everyone is really concerned about. Um, you you can see that with with the the people that are coming out and asking the questions. They're coming to the the information sessions that are. Um, getting in touch with our program, with concerns and questions, it's, it's really top of mind for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, and I can understand that. It, we're, you know, everyone's aware of the situation in North America, that this disease continues to spread, and, and in areas um, that have been impacted, it's, it's been very challenging, not only for conservation of populations, because, you know, some of these areas that have had the disease for a few decades now, really high prevalence in the populations. We're starting to see population declines. But there's also been some some significant impacts to the hunting culture and the experience. And, um, you know, I, I just, I think it's, it's heartbreaking to hear some of those stories and, um, you know, how, you know, how it's changing that experience for people. And so, so I, I, I hear that from the community and I, and I understand that people are, they want to get involved, they want to support it, they want to learn more. Um, but I just, I, you know, I want to make sure that everyone knows, yes, we're aware, we're taking this very seriously. We need to ramp things up and, and make sure that we're doing uh, the best job we can to keep this disease at bay and not let it cross the border. Yeah. Um, but prevention, you know, is our best strategy and, and we're in a, in a, in a really 
great position right now. We have an opportunity to work together and, and, you know, face this and, and keep it out of our wildlife populations. And yeah. And and I think the collaborative approach that's, um, that's developed here that developed, I I think pretty naturally, um, is, is, is really going to assist, uh, in that because there, you know, there's some challenges. There's only so much you can sort of, you know, plan and strategize in the tactics you put out. And then, you know, something's going to come along and you're like, Oh, we didn't think of that. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, you're going to have a group of people that are going to, um, help you work you know, work through that within government, outside of government, um, NGOs and stuff are going to help you work through that. So, um, I think people should, you know, expect a few hiccups. Um, but like you said, like, let's, um, be part of the solution and, and, um, you know, help, help fix those. And, you know, who knows it's going to be, somebody's going to go like, you know, the, freezers are frozen shut because we got to rain or something. Yeah. What, what am I supposed yeah. to do? We're so gonna, uh, gonna we'll, just, we'll work through those things. So yeah, and we're going to have to adjust and, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really critical that, um, you know, we're, we're welcome the feedback and, and that we work together and, you know, we, we manage those challenges as, as they come. And yeah. Yeah. When, um, you know, when, when I spoke, uh, you know, sort of communicated with uh, Doug Duran there uh, a little bit about um, their program in Wisconsin. Um, you know, so so CWD showed up there um, like in 2002. They had three cases and they started to develop problems right off the bat where like literally hunters were denying, you know, that they had a problem. Um, so that, you know, kind of w- was a bit of a a problem in uh, carcass hygiene and stuff. Well, you know, things were still in a voluntary state and, mm-hmm. and he, he, he expressed like how important like hunter buy-in, how critical that is mm-hmm. uh, in, in this program. And, and I think, you know, we are off um, on the right step for hunter buy-in here. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the right attitudes out there. I think pe- people are positive. They are going to help. It's just, it's what hunters do. They step up. Um, at, at this time, the other advice he had that was critical for Hunter buy-in was, was make the whole thing of submitting heads, um, as easy as possible, as Mm -hmm. simple as possible. And, and even like as friendly as possible. Um, one of the things that, uh, he was part of in Wisconsin was, is because they're dealing with a fairly high prevalence right now. Um, like a lot of hunters are getting positive results back that they actually have volunteer groups that manage uh, dumpster kiosks where the, the infected meat or carcasses can be taken back to and they're managed on uh, mm-hmm. on private land and they're taken care of every single day and the stuff is taken off to clay line landfills and you know and, and dumped and stuff and and I, I saw some pictures of some of these kiosks and it was like they were all decorated and they got pumpkins and hay bales mm-hmm. and signs and little flowers and stuff and you know they got motion lights and stuff and you know that was in you know part of the messages is you kind of have to make that that experience there, like a positive positive. one. Right. And, um, that, you know, those, those were some things that were important. The other thing he talked about was the, the, the grassroots movement to sort of take control of, of the responsibility for carcass hygiene and head submission, you know, being, being a grassroots thing, um, really caught the eye of, um, like, 
some of the the legislators, and then they started kicking more money into the into the program. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's important message to get out there, you know, as well. Um, that you know, that uh, a grassroots um, ownership of this um, can be you know, a big win-win, you know, as well. I mean, I have seen a little bit of criticism recently. It's sort of like, well, why isn't the government just paying for all this? Like, why are the hunter groups, you know, having to step up and stuff? And, and you know, and again, it's just because that's what we do. We've always, you know, done that. That's part of the hunting culture of giving back or giving back in a, in a time of need. But um, these sorts of things, grassroots type programs can move a little bit quicker, you know, as far as raising funds, it's a little harder in government to like be looking for budgets, you know, in such a, such a short turnaround time. So the collaboration, um, I think is going to be key. It's very, it's it's very key for you. Yeah, Yeah. I agree with all of that. You know, I, I didn't, um, I'm not a hunter myself. I didn't, I didn't grow up, uh, uh, you know, in a hunting culture, but ever since I've been working, you know, with the province, with this program, I, I realized very quickly the, the vital role that the hunting community uh, plays in, in conservation and, and in, in wildlife health work, especially. Anytime we had a project, a wildlife health project, and we, you know, sent out a request for volunteers or support, it's the the hunting community is there. They're they're right there. They're ready to go. They're it's just we we couldn't do it without them, and uh, and I just it's very inspiring to me, and I I just appreciate that so much. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's a that's a great message. Message. I mean, it's something something hunters are very proud of. Um, it's something that. Um, you know, they, I think it's important for them to be recognized for that. And I think in this day and age where every time you turn around hunters and the hunting community is being criticized, you know, for something in the media, um, that, you know, this is a time I think for the non-hunting community to put their support behind people that are hunting, because this truly is right now, Mm -hmm. um, for you in BC is a very important step in the science of, of wildlife health in the province is getting hunters to get out there on the land and get these samples in. Right. Like, and, and that's not just a hunter benefit, a user benefit thing. Right. We're talking about Mm -hmm. like the health of wildlife populations that belong to everybody in the province and everybody has a different reason why they love them. Um, and they want them there on the landscape and, 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 you know, hunter, hunters are playing uh, an important role in that science step yeah. right now. It's so, a good reason for us to join together as a united front. You know, the scientists, the hunters, and sometimes the hunters are the scientists, you know, and, yeah. and the conservationists, the, the, the naturalists, you know, I, I think it's, it's so important for us to all, um, you know, join together and, and face this together. Um, so what, um, so what are some other things that you can think of that, um, hunters can do, um, that non hunters can do this fall in support of the program that, that you have running here in the region? Well, we, we really want to encourage, uh, everyone, uh, hunters, non hunters, um, everyone to, uh, understand, 
understand the risks associated with this disease, um, you know, uh, inform yourselves, seek out the, the resources so that, um, you know, an, an informed um, public is going to be uh, really critical when things are going to happen fast at some point and, and uh, everyone have the correct information. And if you can, uh, you know, understand those risks and understand what's going on and you can share that information with your, you know, friend groups and your, your family and your colleagues and, you know, having everyone informed is, is really key. Um, we'd like to ask, uh, you know, the, the public to be our eyes on the ground. Um, so that's everyone using the land, whether it's uh, a sick animal in your backyard or, or you're in the, you know, back country and you, uh, if you understand the, the, the clinical symptoms of this disease and you, you see an animal acting abnormally or exhibiting some of these symptoms to please report that to us. We need, we need to hear about that. Um, we don't expect to see, uh, because of this long incubation period, you don't expect to see sick animals on the landscape because they are, you know, more vulnerable to predators, but it's still something we want everyone to be aware of and um, having those eyes on the ground, super helpful. Yeah. And yeah, if you're a hunter to submit a, a head for testing to, um, you know, contribute to, to that uh, knowledge that, that we're, we're building so that we can uh, assess the situation in BC, assess the risk here. And um, yeah, yeah. If uh, if folks can help us with those things, then um, you know we'll we'll feel very supported. Yeah, yeah. No, those are those are good points. A, a couple that I would add to that, or you know, one one that I would emphasize is um, like educate yourself, whether you're a hunter or non-hunter. Educate yourself uh, about this. Um, and, and seek out the facts. I've, I've always said when people have asked me, what can I do for conservation? And I've always said, one of the best things you can do, if not the best thing you can do, is to educate yourself about the issues. Mm -hmm. So um, it's important uh, for you to stay informed, um, learn what the facts are, um, and talk to your MLAs about that. You know, um, so here's here's a group of people that are could potentially come into being a very important um, piece of this puzzle um, in decision making um, and allocation of funds and resources, you know, within government, um, they need to really understand um, what all this is. Well, and the more they hear from their constituents mm -hmm. um, and get educated from their constituents, they understand this is an important, you know, issue. Then those are messages that are taken to Victoria, and you know, then that course that moves back down, um, you know, you know down into your program and I think that's um, that's an important message and you know another important message I I would have is we talked about some of the organizations that have stepped up and been very helpful um, for you right off the bat um, that are part of the uh, provincial and regional um, CWD advisory boards um, join those organizations um, provincially join the BC Wildlife Federation if you're an outfitter in this province Make sure you belong to um, GOABC. Um, those are your two major stakeholders that are part of your provincial program that's there representing mm -hmm. um, those stakeholders. The more 
people that they have that belong to them. It's mm-hmm. a stronger voice they have, and they also can disseminate that information back. You know, so Absolutely. so yeah. um, there's other organizations that you mentioned, like the you know the Wild Sheep Society BC and stuff that were Absolutely. you know contributing funds. Yeah. Um, those funds come from memberships. Uh, you know, and yeah. so so join join those organizations. Yeah. The trappers so. as well, the BCTA. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Even if you're not a trapper, don't, you know, mm-hmm. join, join them or something, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the other big one I'd put out there is, as um, you know, go onto the website and find the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, HCTF, and uh, make a donation to them. They're supporting your program, um, helping mm-hmm. helping you. Anybody can go on and make a donation to them and you can specify what you would like your donations to be used for. Go in there and specify you would like to have this donation put towards the provincial, you know, CWD surveillance and, you know, response program in the province. And those would be huge, huge things, huge huge things to do. So absolutely. Yeah. And on the education piece, I mean, we're working really hard to to um, build the resources that people want and and need. And we hope that um, to make that information accessible to people um but we can only reach you know our network so we really encourage uh that that people out there when you when you find that information to help spread it around um you know post on social media um get the correct information out there i think there there's the potential of of um when the facts aren't readily available there can be a lot of misinformation and, um, you know, we, we struggle with that and, and we hope that we uh, can, can make that the, the correct information more accessible to people. So, um, you know, if, if you're looking for that, reach out to us if you have ideas for how to spread the word. Um, let us know. Absolutely. Or when you find it, share that with your network and, yep. and, and yep. The, the, the correct information can just get out there. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be key, um, for people this in the future could require some huge sort of like, um, um, mental shifts. Um, and, and some of the advice that I've got, um, you know, from people in the heart of this in the Eastern U S um, I talked a little bit, got some information from outdoor writer, um, Patrick Durkin. He's one of the, um, um, contributors for the meat eater. Um, and he, he writes and stuff in, uh, based out of Wisconsin that the, the states that developed a plan and stuck to that plan, Mm -hmm. um, and had good hunter buy-in are, are the ones that are being successful and success is measured in the fact that they're keeping the prevalence of CD CWD down, like mm-hmm. down 2% or less. Mm-hmm. Um, the States that got very political, that lost support, people weren't trusting science. Um, those sorts of the things where things went screwy and they have really severe problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my message, um, that I'm bringing back from those guys is, is trust the science mm-hmm. and, um, trust, trust the people that are putting those facts out there and share those, share those facts. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're very, um, we're very proud of, of the plan that we put together because it was such a collaborative effort and we had input from, from, you know, all of, all of our, our partners and, and so it, uh, it really reflects, I hope. I mean, there's always room for improvement, and with the science, uh, you know, is is coming out at uh, 
you know, on regular intervals. So, you know, we're going to need to keep up on the current information and, and tweak things as we go. But, but the plan that we have now, we're, we're, you know, have a lot of confidence in because it's, it was produced through this collaborative approach. And I think that that, uh, has translated to a, a really, um, uh, quality, quality plan. Absolutely. And, and we'll make sure that the link, um, to that, um, provincial plan is up on our show notes. And so I think the main message here is, uh, BC is still CWD free. Um, we're increasing, um, surveillance and sampling. We're asking hunters to, to, um, will they be required to submit, um, heads that's still part of a prevention program. Um, in, in staying uh, on top of it for early detection. Uh, BC has been doing, you know, the right things that I talked about be- before of things that it was prohibiting, um, you know, a long time ago um, because that's what the science was saying that we needed to do to keep CWD out of this, out of this province. So um, certainly don't, don't use this, uh, you know, as a fear thing. Um, go out there and hunt. Yeah. Keep calm, go hunting. If you want to get into hunting, it's still an amazing thing to do. Um, get into it, um, be part of the solution. And thanks, Kate. Great. This was a great session. Thanks, Mark. And I hope people uh, got a lot. And if you need to, uh, reach out to us here and we'll make sure that uh, we can answer your questions. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.